Hey friends, you're listening to Go Home Baba, You're Drunk, an irreverent media podcast. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. to Go Home Bible, You're Drunk, the podcast where we um, read the word of God and check to see if it's worth anything, worth our time, has any morals to speak of. And um, yeah, anyway, I'm Tori and uh, I am a Bible school dropout slash fundamentalist, I guess former fundamentalist, homeschool Bible nerd weirdo. And um, it's cool. It's great. I have a co-host. <laughs> uh, hey, my name is Justin. I am also a Bible, a Bible nerd weirdo, I guess. Um, and <laughs> I did graduate from Bible college and seminary. So uh, this podcast is me uh, trying to figure out how to make that degree useful and figuring out how to look at the Bible through a different lens, uh, which is um, not the fundamentalist one. And yeah, like Tori said, seeing if there's anything of value there. Um, most of it's not that great, honestly, but, the parts, that, but the parts that are good are actually really good. And, you know, still, we keep talking about it. We can't quit. We, just, we can't we, quit. We can't stop. Oh my we gosh. Can't stop. The um, Bible lives rent-free in my head. Yeah. So, <laughs> and now it lives rent-free in all y'all's head as well. <laughs> So uh, we are joined. And, to, yeah, we have a guest today. Uh, a guest. And we're very excited to have uh, him on. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Andre, Andre Henry. I'm a singer songwriter and an, an author now. I can say I'm an author now. And, <laughs> thank you. And I am also a Bible nerd, although I didn't drop out. I have a degree from Bible college and seminary too. You did the thing. Oh my God. Yeah, I nice. thought I was going to be, you know, I thought I was going to be an old Testament professor at one point. And then mm. we were learning like more languages, more dead ancient Near Eastern languages than I was, than I cared about. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm yeah. not, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <sighs> one dead language is enough. Yeah. Then I, then I settled for Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic, but I was like, yeah, the other things we're trying to get into Akkadian, Ugaritic, no thanks. Yeah. No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good. It's like, I was like at an, like an ancient near Eastern studies restaurant. And I was like, no, I'm full. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. I'm done. I've had enough. (laughs) Check please. Yeah. I've had enough. Yeah. 
But we but we have a Cadian for dessert. No, thank you. <laughs> You're like I'm yeah. full. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stop. I, no means. They always no. try to they always try to sell you dessert after you say you're done eating. Mm -hmm. you, yeah. you sure you don't want a cup of coffee? You don't want to, you know, a little ancient Sumerian. A little yeah. ancient Sumerian. <laughs> you know. We're gonna charge you of the wazoo for it. Also, it's not free. If oh, I no. eat, if I eat ancient Sumerian at this time of night, <laughs> do you know what will happen to my bowels? <laughs> oh man, yeah. And then you add, add in that Persian; it's no good. So, um, but it is delicious. It is delicious <laughs> for sure. I will I will say the ancient Near East and the cultures that sprung from the ancient Near East do have some of the best food in the world. So mm. they do have that going for them. Yeah. Uh, Yums. So I, I will not, you learn their old languages, but I will gladly eat their food. <laughs> They're dead I also for like, a reason. I yeah. also like their stories and poetry and songs. They're interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Andre is going to um, give us a story later in the podcast. Um, but what we're going to do now is we want to talk a little bit about what happened this week in evangelicalism, or really a story. What is happening this week and it's every week ongoing the ongoing saga of saga of evangelicalism which also lives rent free in our heads at times oh uh, my gosh i'm like there... i just i just where where's like the white evangelical hindenburg like i really want to see this thing just like go down in flames like that would bring me so much joy i'm a terrible would, person anyway i thought that you would have thought that would have been the trump presidency but you, you would have thought um but it <laughs> You know, it really galvanized a lot of people together, strangely enough. Um, Turns out boo. that was the diving board for... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... <laughs> like, the Trump presidency... The, the Trump presidency in some ways, I don't know if this is like an old movie, I'm going to date myself, but uh, in the in Austin Powers, like, is, did anyone see Austin Powers? I remember it. Like that scene where that... Um, that like tractor, the cement grinder thing is like very slowly coming towards them and they're screaming mm -hmm. for like a like a solid minute um, that they could completely get out of the way. That's like what the Trump's presidency reminds me of. Like this is a very obvious thing that is very obviously wrong that everyone's like watching, like, are they going to dodge out of the way? Like, nope, nope. Every opportunity to get off the, off the boat here. Nope, nope. You're, you're dedicated to this now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wow. Like, I don't uh, think you understand, like, the Titanic is the most important ship in history. And if we leave it right now, then who knows what's going to happen? Like, these pours <laughs> might take it over. Fuck knows. These yeah. pours. We got to keep driving this thing all the way. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, so this week, there was an article that came out in The Atlantic um, called The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. Um, it's, a, it's a very good article. I think it brought up a lot of things that I uh, found interesting. And um, yeah, Tori had also read it and really kind of shows the, like, I think the evangelical church, the white evangelical church, I should say, uh, to be more specific, is very much beginning to say the quiet parts out loud um, and driving folks that were maybe more respect, quote unquote, respectable. Um, at least in that circle, like Beth Moore, Russell, or Beth Moore, Russell Moore. Um, nope, not related or married, but I just, I just now realized that the same last name. Sorry, it's just really, um, you know, and a few others that that were maybe uh, not as political per se. Um, and, and in some ways, it has devolved into 
what this writer says is like a political cult um, where the politics really is the unifying factor and Jesus is the window dressing in some ways. Um, so wanted to talk a little bit about that and just kind of see what, what comes up. Um, I mean, I, I, I was kind of skeptical when, like I saw, I saw this article and honestly, the reason that I clicked on it was because I'm really tired of people using the term tribal, um, in a derogatory sense. I think that's mm -hmm. really fucked up and anti-indigenous. So, um, I wanted to yell at some people, which is why I read the article initially. It <laughs> so does say like, tribe a few times in the article. It does. Yeah. And like, it's gross. Anyway. Um, yeah, so I, I was like not really expecting to read anything that I hadn't heard a million times before, but I was actually really kind of fascinated by the way that um, the author pulls everything together. Um, and, you know, talking about what we've brought up several times, um, like the fact that evangelical, like we're watching the term evangelical shift from a religious identifier to a political identifier um and like there's there's some religiosity that goes along with it to some extent but um it's there's all the like traditional family values which is you know traditional for whom um those people they're somehow they're like all on the same team and you know what's really interesting historically about this is that they use they used abortion to do this with like Catholics <clears throat> and Protestants, right? In terms of like mm -hmm. creating a political um, group of people that had some kind of cohesion because um, like, yeah, we kind of know about <clears throat> Protestant history just sort of in general. Um, and that like abortion was kind of the thing that they used to sort of create the moral majority, right? So it, to me, in that context, it's not super surprising that they're now looping in people who actually aren't, aren't believers. And those individuals are now the ones like running the show, they're driving the ship. Mm -hmm. um, and they're the ones they're dictating to their pastors, to their church leadership, um, what is and is not acceptable yeah. in white evangelical churches and i think that that is very fascinating and like there are so many white evangelical pastors right now who are like afraid of their congregations yeah sweetie you did this to yourself yeah i found the the part where they were talking about how pastors are uh, like don't know what to do mm -hmm. um and and i can feel i, I kind of feel that a little bit in the sense that I tried for years when I was a pastor to try to introduce what they called catechism or just like basic like Christian ethics into right. my teaching and the resistance that I felt mm -hmm. mostly because basic ethics leads you to non not evangelicalism yeah not evangelicalism or non-conservative you know religious views yeah um, you know, I had one lady say, you talk about race way too much. And I was like, I actually don't talk about it that much, hardly at all. Um, you're just really uncomfortable the second I bring up the fact that maybe we're not right all the time. Like, mm -hmm. um, and, <laughs> and, and it's, 
Yeah, imagine, imagine that for a second. And especially because like Jesus very much confronts religious people all the time. So it's like baked mm-hmm. into this book that we say we love that Jesus is going to read our shit. Um, but when you ask, when you really let that happen, it, there's so much resistance. It's absurd the amount of resistance. I mean, I always felt like, like when I was a pastor, I was a pastor for seven years in New York City from 2007-2014. I always found that like, or even before then, I don't think that Bible reading generally was like something that a lot of evangelicals actually did. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's something we talk about doing, but like I was one of, I was one of the only people that I knew that had actually read through the entire Bible when I, when I was involved in evangelicalism. So I think that's one thing. And then even those that do, I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking of like this guy, he works at a very large church, very large evangelical church. Um, one of the largest in the country, as a matter of fact. And he posted something on Facebook years ago about how Jesus never called, like never called people out publicly. And I was like, Ooh. which jesus okay <laughs> like uh what uh, <laughs> you know? like... and i'm like we have like a whole i mean this is just one but like just matthew 24 alone is like one big like jesus is just grandstanding calling mm-hmm. out like religious leaders and i remember putting that out there and the guy just not responding to the comment and so i guess the thing that i'm just saying is like even what's in there seems to like go through a filter mm-hmm. to where like to where like folks just don't see what they don't want to right because like they're u- they're utilizing the bible right they're using it for whatever their political goal or political purpose yeah. is mm-hmm. whatever their political objectives are even though of course like they're going to claim that they don't have any political objectives because they're not political you know it's all about the kingdom or whatever but I haven't been in church in a long time. I don't know what people say anymore. But yeah, some, <laughs> yeah. some version of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's fascinating to me. I experienced that. Um, I was mostly a youth pastor and associate pastor. So I didn't get to preach in front of the congregation that much, like the whole mm. thing. But occasionally I would. Um, and I remember I would read like large chunks of scripture. I would always like, I even had like quotas for myself, like internal ones, just making sure like you're quoting Mm -hmm. from multiple sources in scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really trying hard to do that. And someone like said, like your teaching just really seems to be too, too political or too like based on your agenda. You're not that biblical. Like, and then they brought up this other pastor, their senior pastor. He is so biblical. Like, I, basically, I really wish you were more like him. It's kind of the, the kind of backhanded compliment mm. or backhanded criticism, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so I remember, okay, the next Sunday, I was like, I'm going to pay attention here to what Mr. Senior Pastor says. Um, and he did not quote from the Bible one time in his entire sermon. Wow. He referenced Whoa. it. Like, right. I mean, of course. Like, it was referenced. It wasn't like, but not once and it was like that moment to me was like okay like we have two different definitions of biblical for sure um and we have very different definitions of what it means to use scripture and it's just like 
you just want to be, you want this comfort food that like appears biblical. It's like kind of like a TV dinner. That's like, this says it's steak. It's not, but like, it says that it is. And so that like makes me feel good. Um, and I think that's most of teaching in most evangelical churches. Um, and this kind of slow yin and yang of the pastor is paid and mostly hired by a lot of these congregations and the congregation puts pressure on them to teach a certain way and the yep. pastor gives into it after so long and then you have this you know what they called in the article crisis of discipleship where these people have like millions of people have no idea how to discern truth from fiction when they get on facebook and then they get you know continually radicalized and then there's these pastors that throw up their hands that are like we couldn't have seen this coming it's like well okay <laughs> But you were really comfy teaching the sermon about 10 ways to have a great marriage for 20 weeks, you know, <laughs> um, or in the years like uh, leading up to some of the like pivotal moments in the Black Lives Matter movement, they were totally comfortable telling black people in their congregations mm -hmm. that, you know, racism is not central to the gospel or, yep. you know, they're not supposed to use the pulpit to talk about political issues, which I get like you're not supposed to like campaign for a candidate or something like that but like you know these are things that i feel like a lot of people said for one reason they made excuses not to address mm -hmm. right like and it's very it's very simple like it's as simple as biblical concept and biblical language you reap what you sow right yeah and i think a lot of people take that as like what goes around comes around but no it's like if you plant apple trees you get apples right mm -hmm. might not so be next year yeah. But you'll get them. Yeah, you'll you get them. So if you don't plant any seeds that give people a framework to connect their spirituality, their Christian spirituality and social justice, then when it's time for us to be in that moment, you know, and to get and engage in that way, how can you expect fruit from that congregation in that way? You mm -hmm. literally have not been nourishing them on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They don't have it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. But evangelicalism doesn't, oh, this should have been the shit that I brought up. This should have been the moment in church history. Evangelicalism doesn't have frameworks for social justice because the father of evangelicalism, Mr. Jonathan Edwards, uh, like was a slaveholder mm -hmm. and a slavery apologist. Yep. Uh -huh. Case in point, we don't know exactly what Jonathan Edwards like thought about slavery because he didn't finish the, the, the essay that he was writing in defense of it. But... <laughs> people were people were like criticizing him other other christians were criticizing him for being a slaveholder and he was preparing to write something in response to them and he wrote that he jotted down some notes about what he thought he might say in, in in defense of slavery on the back of a receipt that he got for buying a human being oh my oh my god and that's where evangelicalism comes from yeah. yeah like from yeah. from that from that guy and his from buddies that. you know yep so we Gross. shouldn't be surprised to look down the line and see oh like this um these even these theological frameworks that come from evangelicalism these communities these people who are shaped by these communities have no concept of like the exodus story being a story about god being so upset about systemic oppression that God deems that the the Egypt in that story as irredeemable like the whole thing's mm -hmm. like it's it's an abolition story right like but there's no way to see that in evangelicalism mm -hmm. right right yeah
yeah, everything is is filtered through this like historical accuracy, quote unquote. Like, and so like this is a story that happened. This isn't a mythology that teaches us something. Right. Um and and in that case in particular, because I had evangelical pastors tell me that like, oh, that story's not about like God opposing systemic oppression. It's like God needed the Israelites because he because he of of course they they think God is a man. Um uh that that God wanted Jesus to come from that bloodline. And that's why God had to free them from Egypt. Yeah. Because, because God wanted Jesus to come from them. Not because, not because of what God actually says in the text in Exodus 3, 7, that like, I have heard the cries of my people. I've seen their pain because of the Egyptians and I felt their pain and I've come down to deliver them. Not even God knows why God did it. The evangelicals know better because like <laughs> Yahweh kind of says it in the text. I'm doing this for these reasons. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. But really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like making the whole Old Testament point to Jesus means you miss about 99% of what the Old Testament is actually saying. Yeah. And that's such a beautiful story, like a, a story that mm-hmm. I feel like could have legs today. Mm. Yeah. And, oh, absolutely. And could be used very powerfully in, sure. in white context and black context and in all, all of the various iterations of Christianity. Like this could ha- be a powerful story, but mm-hmm. white evangelicals have turned it into this is a historical thing that happened. And now mm-hmm. it justifies like when we get to Joshua, us killing people in the name of God. Yeah. Like that's where it lands. Um, or taking land in the name of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this article starts talking about that, like using this language that could be liberating and making mm-hmm. it oppressive. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, fu- basically finding the worst readings possible of scripture, like finding the most oppressive, the most racially animated, the most politically charged passages and reading them as us versus them, me versus you. It's, you know, God's people, which always tend to be white people, always Mm -hmm. tend to be middle-class people, always tend to be, you know, people that are friends with the police officer down the street. And, you know, like always tends to be those people. Like it's never the people that I think actually um, need liberation in our society, you know, whoever that happens to be. Yeah. I had, um, I was, uh, I did a, what's, what's the, Twitter live thing called um, spaces. spaces. Yeah. yeah. Um, with some other Portland activists um, earlier in the week. And I, I brought this up because we were kind of, we were talking about um, like anger and justice and like how we use those things together, like in our protesting and kind of combining that with like if you want to kind of like a faith ethic and um I absolutely brought up the point that it's like they take the this language and they use it to mean things that it does not mean right and are you like mm-hmm. the most acute example of this right is is that they say like oh well we we love queer people we love gay people um we just want to fundamentally change who they are Mm. for the rest of their lives Mm um right and that's that's what they that's what they mean if they say like oh we love we love black people or we love people in africa like we want to fundamentally change you to make you part of white culture is what we 
mean mm. by love, right? Yeah. And that that inherently involves violence, mm-hmm. right? So their yeah. definition of love inherently involves using force against someone who has not consented, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think another thing that I see all the time that's like really started to bug me is how frequently they use the word slavery, like slavery to mm-hmm. sin, you know, mm-hmm. um, in contexts of like porn addiction, not a thing, by the way. Um, and like these ongoing struggles that people have with like lust or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, like we used, to, we used to be like slaves to sin and like Satan had us captive. And it's like, sweetie, like sit down. Like you have no idea what you are talking about, but they'll just like, they just throw it into songs. Like, and this is, this is how, this is their framing of it. Right. Mm-hmm. This is like, I, um, like middle-class white person. Uh, yeah. I was a slave to sin before I met Christ. And, um, yeah. So totally. I know what you're talking about. Right. Like, yeah, it's awful. Yeah. Wow. Slavery is awful. And it's like, what, what the fuck? Like, where did you even come up with this? Um, yeah. So I, that I, the trivializing of slavery yes. or like the minimizing it as a. It's just a theological a, idea. Yeah. yeah to it's them. like, or the spiritualizing of everything. Yes. Um, even the Exodus story, like spiritualizing that where it's like, oh, this right. is a journey mm-hmm. of my, this is about my own personal spiritual journey or yeah, like mm-hmm. I, I I mean, I will admit to using slavery language as a, as a evangelical all the time. Cause that's, it's I mean, built in. it's in the text for one. It is, like, yeah, but, that's but the it's word in the text chose. because Paul lived in a culture that had a lot of slavery and he also was a slave apologist in some ways. Yeah. Um, well, I should say the people writing and Paul's name were slave apologists. Whether actual Paul was is a different story, but that's right. That is TBD. another that is another podcast altogether. Um, <laughs> the people writing in Paul's name loved using slave language, and so like yeah, mm-hmm. it is in Christianity, but that trivializing, you're absolutely right. Um, mm-hmm. And then when you trivialize it, it's like oh, like you guys are talking about slavery way back when. But like I was a slave to porn once and it wasn't so bad. Um, yeah, that's just had to repent. Just all you had to do is repent and then you can be like me. Um, oh my God, you're so right. Um, sorry, I'm just like caught up in this, like seeing this. I mean, well, they don't even think that slavery was that, that bad, like child right. slavery. Was that right. Bad. Yeah, like, that's yeah. not, it's not the type of slavery that's been talked about in the Bible, which doesn't mean it's okay. But I mean, like they don't, they don't know the horrors of chattel slavery and don't want to they don't want because they don't know because they don't want to yeah because we're not taught it in school but i mean nothing's preventing anyone from getting a lot of a lot of equiano's book you know or Mm -hmm. the other slave narrative you know and reading you know about what you know our ancestors actually went through yeah you know but like I remember like having conversations with people. Actually, one of my best one of my best friends in seminary. Um, and I write about this in my book, actually, because I was so astonished that like there was just one day, I think we were talking about the murder of Philando Castillo by the Minneapolis police, me and uh, a professor at Fuller Seminary. And we were talking about how these things are rooted, like the police and all the stuff is rooted in um enslavement and chattel slavery. 
And yeah. so my best friend in seminary at the time overhears this conversation. He chimes in. He starts defending slavery as a concept, you know, as as an abstraction. And I'm like, so I, like I I'm a pretty straightforward person, you know. I try to be straightforward without being violent. So I, I just said to him, like, you know, uh, this isn't a conversation about slavery in the abstract, you know, because white people mm-hmm. like, and and I feel yeah. like slavery is really having a moment right now, like chattel slavery. Like people are like. Hmm, maybe we should reconsider that that idea. Maybe it had potential, you know, like, um, yeah. and this was the first time I heard somebody do this because I'm explaining like, okay, this is not some abstract conversation about slavery and how it has existed in different forms and different societies throughout history. We're talking about, right. we're talking about how <laughs> the British, uh, the British really... Okay, look, let's back up even for a second. All these European kingdoms that decided they want to co- colonize the world, they start competing, you know, for like, who can, like, I shouldn't say competing because that makes it sound intentional, but they take, they take turns uh, as leaders in producing racist ideas mm-hmm. and, and in, you know, capitalist production, right? Like they're trying to maximize profits for their nations, build wealth, build power, consolidate mm-hmm. power, all that kind of stuff. But I always like to connect these like to this build this power building and wealth building because slavery was a part of capitalism is capitalism. It was the engine of capitalism. Yeah. And so like so that we always connect like the building of the the building of white wealth with the breaking of black bodies, right? Like these mm-hmm. and that is that's partly why we have to investigate capitalism the way that we do. But anyway, these these while these kings were doing, the British take the lead at some point. Like this, I mean, they ruled most of the world. And the violence that they did is innumerable. Mm-hmm. And then some of them decided that they didn't want to be British anymore. And they rebranded themselves as Americans. And then they took it even further, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're talking that's what we're talking about. So anyway, yeah. I hear white people do this thing where they want to make slavery as though it was some as though millions of people didn't die, as though millions of people weren't tortured, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and worse. Mm-hmm. I don't want to just go mm-hmm. into graphic. Yeah. 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 I definitely see that. Like kind of kind of all over the place and I think that it's interesting because well this is just this is just my theory but I don't think that you could have if you told white evangelicals to repent of capitalism they would think that you were telling them to renounce their faith yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely yep absolutely there's no difference to them well God has always been the plantation owner in the sky right (laughs) I mean, at least at least the white male god that you know was yes. created through white Christianity. Yeah, that, like that. Like, that is perfect. But like, but at, but you know, white male god was the big colonizer in the sky when the pope wrote. Uh, when yeah. when the, mm-hmm. when the pope wrote these papal bulls saying giving them permission mm-hmm. to go in and to quote unquote civilize and Christianize people by taking their land and massacring them and enslaving people. So then God was the big colonizer in the sky. You know, that's why they put Jesus on one of, on the side of one of the, one of the first slave ships. It's called Jesus of Lubeck. That's Jesus's name, mm-hmm. right? Of, yeah. of course. So like they think Jesus is just a bigger version of themselves. They had to because if they think of Jesus as a brown peasant, you know, 
then they have to think of the people that they're doing this to as being made in the image of God, just like them. Mm -hmm. Then God becomes a big plantation owner in this guy, you know, uh, condoning, supporting chattel slavery. God becomes the the policeman in the sky, the billionaire mm -hmm. in the sky. Like mm -hmm. whatever, whatever white people need to reflect about themselves into the cosmos so that they can reassure themselves that the violence that they participate in yeah. is legitimate. Yeah. <laughs> God becomes, it puts a real twist on God's name. Like when God introduces God's self to Moses and says, I am whatever I will be. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I am like, whatever you imagine me to me. Yes. In, in whiteness that takes on some kind of bizarro concept. <laughs> I really do like want to make a horror movie that just takes white theology literally because it is a horror oh. story. Because it is a the, horror story. Yeah, yeah, it's terrifying. That's it's a terrifying. little bit what Midnight Mass did, like a little bit. Not, not. It wasn't as charged as that, but it is like taking some of those theologies to the extreme yeah. and well, just making, to the natural conclusion and making it right. and making it horrific. I do think that horror is the right genre to explore some of these things. I have a horror film idea where Jesus, white Jesus, plays a serial killer. Have I told you about this story? No, what are yeah. you talking about? They're like, I love. This. I do have this concept where, like, you just take white evangelical theology and just take it to its logical conclusion. And at the time, it was like 2016 when I thought about this because I was listening because Oceans came on. Y'all remember that song, Oceans? Mm -hmm. You'll probably might get in trouble if I if I sing it. So no, um, that's fine. Go ahead. You're let me walk upon the waters wherever you will call me right so yeah yeah this yeah. song comes on in in 2016 and i'm spending all this time speaking up about racism and i was trying to do it theologically because i thought at the time that i could help that i thought uh -huh. that i could appeal to my white event evangelical friends by starting yep. with shared values right like yep. we say that we follow jesus we mm -hmm. say we're supposed to love our neighbor well then you know fighting against racism is a way that we love our neighbor and they were not having that so anyway no Oceans comes on and I'm thinking, man, there's no way the narrator of this song makes it through alive. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> there's like the narrator can't make it through this song alive because what white evangelicals keep telling me at the time is that the reason why we can't, that we, why we shouldn't be involved in the Black Lives Matter movement and the reason why we shouldn't be speaking about racism at church is because God cares about your soul and not about what happens to your body. Yep. So you call me out upon the waters. Oh, wait, if I am in the water and I am in trouble and Jesus doesn't really care about my body, he cares about my soul, that's what he really wants, then it's in Jesus' actual interest to not save me. <laughs> because then Physically. Jesus, yeah, physically, yeah. because then Jesus gets my soul. And by that logic, Jesus should just kill me himself. Yeah. So I'm literally like thinking about this, like, oh my God, in the song Oceans, Jesus calls you out on the water. You better not go out there. <laughs> yeah, you better stay home. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Because Jesus is definitely going to try oh. to drown. Oh my God. Oh like, my so here it is. I'm going to tell you because I'm not a screenwriter and I don't think I'll ever write it because I was holding on to it like, but I don't want someone to sue my idea. But now I'm like, <laughs> you know. Well, if someone does decide they want to make it, can I just be a part of it? Like it somehow, like, can I soundtrack it? Can I get credit for having the idea? But I, all I saw was this scene is at the beginning of the movie, you see white Jesus kill somebody. 
You see it. You see them drown someone. I mean, now it's it's set in present day, right? So it's not like right. it's right. not like AD one, like Jesus in his white bathrobe and his pur- purple sash yeah. is killing people. I mean, like, but we cast body. Jim Caviezel, so we know it's Jesus. <laughs> yes, exactly. Jesus. Yeah, exactly. I mean, clearly it's Jim Jim Caviezel, so we know who this guy is, right? Yeah. And that's part of the argument after, because you still want for it to be a little bit like, was that Jesus? And then that's one of the arguments people will make. It's like, but it was Jim Caviezel. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So anyway, you watch white Jesus drown somebody at the beginning of the movie. And you saw it, how it happened. And the cops, it's a cop movie. So the cops, the detectives, are like spend this whole movie trying to find, track down white Jesus. He's got followers, blah, 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 blah. And finally, they catch him. But not like in the official way. Like the one cop, like gets Jesus in like this shady way that he really shouldn't have. So he's kind of got white Jesus in his basement and he's interrogating white Jesus. <laughs> and white Jesus tells you the story of that person that you watched white Jesus kill at the beginning of the movie. But when they retell it, it looks like the most glorious, beautiful, shining baptism ever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that when the credits roll, people are sitting in the theater going, this nigga is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I love this so much. He Andre. of his mind. Andre, just like the concept of baptism is violence. is like, I'm going to be stuck on that for like four months now. Yeah. Like you put that in my head and I'm never going to not think about it for the rest yeah. of my life. I mean, it could, it could easily go that way, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you're if you're dealing with if you're dealing with the characters such as you know white jesus yeah absolutely that's great all right um we're gonna take a brief break uh so think think about white jesus go get a beverage and watch your back um, <laughs> <laughs> hold, your gonna, breath. hold your breath watch your back <laughs> uh and uh yeah we'll be right back uh listen to smads and we'll see you in a moment First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back. Uh, thanks for listening to those, to those delightful ads. Uh, we do have one uh, thing, more thing before we get moving uh, further into our podcast, and that is to acknowledge one of our patrons, patron Megan. Uh, she is recently pledged uh, at the Youth Pastor tier. The Youth Pastor tier, you get a life verse. Um, and so I'm going to read this life verse right now. Uh, this is where we randomly give you a verse. So it's completely random, I promise. Hear me. Pages. All right. All right, Megan, uh, your verse is found in Daniel chapter four, verse 23. Uh, Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the field of grass while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live 
with the wild animals until seven times pass by him. There you go, Megan. That, that is such a long verse. Oh that my is gosh. such a long verse. I had to <laughs> Wait, look at it a few times. Verse. That was one verse. Right, right. <laughs> that was, yes. I was like, that happened Megan. to one other patron as well. That was like, this is a really long verse. Going into a lot of detail yeah. here. Yeah. So um, yeah, may he be drenched in the dew of heaven, uh, Megan, and until seven times pass from him. Whatever that means to you, I hope oh, that man. I hope that that happens for you. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Some scribe got really tired of putting numbers in the text. Yes. I just yes. like gave no. up. Uh, no. He's just like, listen, I'm only going to put six numbers in this scroll. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know y'all want me to do like sentences at a time, but I got places to go. <laughs> I got things to do, man. No. I've got, yeah. I've got beer to brew. <laughs> how am i gonna feed my family yeah, yeah. um all right so uh all right. for today's drinking game we've talked about white jesus a lot um so i think maybe we'll do a serial killer thing again um oh, yeah. and whenever you feel like white jesus is inspiring people to be a little bit like a serial murder? killer murder 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 vengeance mayhem not like the opposite of the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes mm. and all the things that Jesus liked. Um, you go ahead and take a drink. Uh, if you're not already drunk from listening to us talk about why that, Jesus. Um, yeah. Good luck. You can uh, continue. So, um, Andre, would you like to start us off? Yeah. So in my hometown, right on the, outs- right on the outside of town, there is a 1600 foot tall piece of quartz that we call stone mountain it's technically not a mountain because mountains are made when tectonic plates do things this there are no plates there this is just a huge rock and (laughs) i always throw in a little science when i tell the story Um, i love it i love it so there's a huge rock there and on that rock um is the largest bass relief carving in the world uh, it's 190 feet across, 90 feet tall. It is also the largest Confederate monument in the country. A carving of uh, Jefferson Davis, Stonewall Jackson, and Robert E. Lee on horseback, uh, staring majestically into the distance. Fun fact about this, uh, about this carving. It was actually the idea of a white woman, a Klan sympathizer. Um, I can't remember her name. And she wanted it to just be a carving of General Lee with Klansmen in their hoods uh, marching behind him. That was the original idea for the carving. But wow. Wow. It, so Jefferson Davis was the edited version. Jefferson Davis is the edited version because oh, wow. the art, artist said it was beneath him to make a carving of just Robert E. Lee by himself. He could do the Mount Rushmore version uh, of uh, the Confederate generals. And so he, that's the only reason though, not because I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna carve Klansmen in their hoods into the side of this building. Of course not. These were, these were the days when it was okay to be an overt white supremacist socially. So I wish that they had though, because now we'd be forced to get rid of it. Yeah. I I mean, like it'd be gone now if it were Klans people. Yeah. Yeah. With all of the, uh, what do they call that? Lost cause 
propaganda. Yeah. I guess it's debatable. I guess it's debatable as to whether or not the current carving is racist. But I grew up with, I grew up in the shadow of Confederate Mount Rushmore and and on that same rock where Confederate Mount Rushmore is uh, on a cold night in November around Thanksgiving in 1915, a Methodist, a Methodist pastor, some Civil War veterans, uh, Confederate veterans, and some OG Klansmen because the clans, the Ku Klux Klan had been defunct for a while. Walked to the top of that very rock that's in my hometown at, with a sword and they built an altar and they laid a sword, a Bible and an American flag down at the, down at the altar. And they pledged allegiance to the invisible empire and set fire to a cross. Oh, wow. And that is how the modern Ku Klux Klan was reborn. Now, I just got, as I say that, I got to say a fun fact about the, the burning cross. The original Ku Klux Klan didn't burn crosses. They never did that. This was the first time the Klan burnt a cross. And they were inspired to do that because of a film uh, released in 1913 by D.W. Griffith called Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation was the first, uh, which was based on a novel called The Klansman, a huge piece of Civil War prop, uh, uh, lost cause propaganda that painted this Klansman in a heroic light. And uh, this movie showed like the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan basically trying, basically defending white women from rapacious black man, the mythical rapacious black man. And so this is the first mm -hmm. thing that happened. So anyway, this is a moment of church. This is an instance of church history where a Methodist pastor, I don't think I mentioned that before. That's why I, that's, that's the big part is a Methodist pastor was the leader of this group of Confederate veterans and OG Klansmen and other, so what, 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 what other, whatever other assortment of white supremacists was in the group. I'm not, mm -hmm. I don't know all of, I don't know all the organizations represented. The, the white supremacists oh. on parade. parade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a, a Methodist pastor led them up there wow. to initiate this, this reign of terror, this era of terror. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, it's really interesting to me because like as well more people are more people are finding out figuring out but like yeah protecting protecting the virtue of white women was mm -hmm. a major driver of uh white terrorism like white christian terrorism in the u.s yeah because um, white men are like only we get to rape our women right yeah yep. i mean it's not yep. wrong it's yep. not wrong yeah. um yeah and yeah this kicks off like a terrible era too like uh-huh yeah 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 it was like stuff was already bad like after reconstruction kind of got sidelined stuff was already yeah. bad but this was like this is a whole a whole new wave of of violence and i think um you know i know in portland the uh, the Klan was uh, kind of grew here in the churches um, mm. because there were preachers who, you know, would preach about Jesus. And also like, we have to, we have to protect 
our city. We have to protect our women and children. Um, mm-hmm. And at least, uh, you know, at least in Portland, like it, it went so far, it went so far that um, the Portland police union was founded by active Klansmen wow. who were also cops. Oh, geez. Mm-hmm. And wow. it was, yeah, it was really like, there was a big using churches, right? Like it's really fa- like the juxtaposition of, of the way that enslaved people use church mm-hmm. as a means to organize for liberation. And then white Christians were using church as a way to organize terror and violence. Um, and it's see again, and it's like, this is ostensibly the same religion mm. with completely different aims, completely different goals, completely different desires. And they both claim that they worship the same dude, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I think that there is, there's going to be some kind of fundamental rejection, right? Of like, do you worship the guy that the clans people worship? Like, you're going to say, no, that makes mm-hmm. perfect sense to yeah, me. For sure. But they're both under this umbrella of Christian. And it's like, are we going to use, to me, at least as an atheist, right? It's like, are you going to use your faith for liberation? Or are you going to use your faith to continue white supremacist terrorism Mm -hmm. in the name of God? Mm -hmm. Right. And it goes all the way back to the beginning, like just even with, even with the clan aside, you know, as you, as you're talking about, like, Jonathan fucking Edwards, um, <laughs> right? That that white evangelicalism as 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 a theology, like kind of on the whole, I it, it is really fascinating to me that there is no there is no theology of the body in white evangelicalism because God can't care about bodies. Because if God cares about your body, if God cares about you suffering, that is uh, doesn't really work with my ideology, and. You know, yeah. white I mean, people get fucked up by that too, though. You know, it, it's not like they can't say, oh, God only doesn't care about like black and native bodies. It's like, well, nope, God just doesn't care. So if you're white and poor, like, yeah, nobody, SOL. nobody cares. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you didn't work hard enough or you didn't, you know, which, which quote unquote, working hard is definitely the use of your body to produce wealth. So like there is a theology of the body in there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, Mm -hmm. but it, but it is, um, it's co-opted by capitalism for sure. Mm -hmm. And it, and it's in service Mm -hmm. to this, this, yeah, we, we have to fight to maintain our supremacy because people are coming after us. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but we, I don't think most white people, well, most white people, when I was growing up, wouldn't say it out loud. I think maybe more white people would now, but it's it's more like we're fighting for civility, quote unquote, or we're fighting right, yeah. for, mm-hmm. for our shared values and, yeah. and, and Western civilization, Western civilization, like mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, and and if you guys got with the program, you know, you guys being everyone else, then you know you could have just as much as we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like it's. It's like that racism light that I think Ooh. is basically <laughs> everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And and so like you get people, I mean, most, of, I mean, a good chunk of the people, a good chunk of the mentors and people that I knew growing up would confidently say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Mm-hmm. Like they would literally say that phrase, um, but they objectively were racists by almost any measure. They just didn't mm-hmm. say it. 
Um, well, and I think they 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 decided that that's not what racism was, yeah. right? Yeah. Because because the the cool thing about about whiteness, like as a construct, is, is like I get to dictate again what is and is not harmful to you, mm. right? So if I say that this is not harming you, then that's that's my determination, right? I get to decide that we can't trust you. You are untrustworthy inherently because of your culture or whatever. Um, and so you end up having this kind of, you end up having this like very, very kind, very extreme violence that people have unilaterally, like white folks have unilaterally decided isn't violence, right? It's protecting mm -hmm. our values. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, the, when you get within whiteness, within the frameworks and the common sense of whiteness, like the definitions are not the same, you know, they just, mm -hmm. they just they're just not the same thing. So like, I mean, think about like the violence that the amount of violence that was uh, that was used just to build some of these nations and to build these countries. Right. And this is the issue that we're in right now, like in America, where they're demonizing things that are just history, like just historical yeah. facts as Christian as as critical race theory. Yeah. You know, say we can't talk about them like like the fact that America was founded by white supremacists <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. and it was founded on the logic of white supremacy, which means that the institutions and structures were literally meant to serve people in an unequitable yep. way. They were meant yep. to serve. I mean, this is, this is something we don't talk about a lot. And I actually do write about this a bit in my book is that right around like, the the on-ramp to world war ii like the 1930s you have white fascist nazis in germany writing studying american law yep and they're writing about american law right and <laughs> if you read what they actually say oh my god there's one I can't remember exactly right now, but I, I made sure that I cited this and put it in put it in the book. Um, but he writes that it's it's like in a Nazi magazine. So just imagine like this is like oh, yeah yeah time like Time magazine for Nazis. You have a subscription; mm -hmm. it's delivered mm -hmm. to your door, the kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So this guy, this this Nazi um, legal scholar, writes that the most important event in that millennium of world history to the to the aryan races quest for world domination the most important event was the founding of the united states of america hmm. he writes that right at the same time you have black people in america like the poet langston hughes who spoke at this writers conference an international writers conference and people don't realize how deep langston hughes was in the anti-fascist tradition because yeah he, he spent time uh in spain during the spanish civil war he was over there he was writing poems about the spanish civil war and wow. about fascism and all that kind of stuff and so he's invited to this huge writers conference and langston hughes says black people in america don't need to be told what fascism is, mm -hmm. we already know. Yep. And he talks about Jim Crow. Yep. So black people that were around, that were alive at that time were saying fascism is a new name for an old thing, right? This is the magnitude of violence that has gone into creating and sustaining America. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about it, <laughs> people are offended because the violence doesn't count, mm -hmm. right? right? 
the vi yeah. violence that Christopher Columbus was doing, the violence that the that the forefathers participated in, the violence of all those in, that of all those slaveholders as they were holding black people and creating all these commodities and making the nation nation rich on, on the sweat and blood of black people. Like that violence doesn't count. The violence that the police officers commit against us, that does none of that stuff counts as violence. Right. Mm -hmm. It's what we do that counts as violence. And so there was something that I thought of, Tori, when you were talking about like no theology of the body. And I was like, I do think that there is a certain type of theology of the body within white evangelicalism. But what can that mean when you belong to a social group that has literally been considered to be non-human, to be no bodies? Right. So that theology, like the things that you would say that you're not supposed to do to to another human, mm -hmm. they don't apply. Yeah. Yep. In this framework of white supremacy, because we mm -hmm. are non-human in that, you know, mm -hmm. in that hierarchy. And I don't think that modern white evangelicals, I mean, I think this, I mean, it's not just white evangelicals. I think that just white people, especially in America, or I can really only speak, I guess, in America in this way, but... We all know that again, Americans didn't pop up on this country ex nihilo, like they they came from Europe where racism was invented. Yeah. So um per current evangelicals don't seem to think that these ideas are passed on to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What I was gonna say I, is that I know that I didn't. Seem, I wouldn't have known I wouldn't have known that unless I actually like really the notion had to work. Of just the notion of just cause and effect when applied mm -hmm. to history. <laughs> seems to not occur to some people mm -hmm. so we talk about these things like we don't just talk about these things to say okay well they existed among you know white christian racists in the past mm -hmm. these white christian racists built your religion yep <laughs> which means that they shaped your values yeah <laughs> you know which means that there's might be a reason why current evangelicals don't consider something like i don't know black liberation important you know right well, I mean, your 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 religion was invented by slaveholders. It's yeah. like we lose track of that. So anyway, I I think I was making a bunch of different points about like how the violence that they that they commit doesn't count as violence. The violence that or the, and anything that we do to challenge like anything that we yeah, do, anything that we do, is considered like anything we do to challenge like the building yep. of these nations on you know land theft and genocide and enslavement. Mm -hmm is considered violent, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, like, it doesn't matter if it's, not, right. It doesn't matter if it is actual, the actual use of force. It doesn't matter if there is any coercion involved. It doesn't matter if property is damaged or not. Like we are in the wrong and we are committing violence because yeah. we're reminding white supremacy that like, no, actually you're fucking wrong. Sorry, right. like right. we count too, our lives right. matter. Yeah, like, like and, and that the phrase black lives matter spawned a like, counter police cult of like blue lives matter like i feel like to me that's like like do you do you not see what's happening here well even um, more than that yeah. it is triggered it is triggered another fascist counter-revolution yes which is what the which is what the rebirth of the ku klux klan is about whenever there is a move toward racial equity, a move toward black liberation in this country, like like Reconstruction was, 
there is a fascist, there's a white fascist counter-revolution, which was the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. Those yep. Nazis in Germany were looking at the Klan here and saying, oh, they're the, they're the, they're the American fascists, mm -hmm. you know, which is what Langston Hughes was saying too, they're the American fascists. Okay, during the civil rights movement, <laughs> um, or yeah, when the civil rights movement is taking off, um, all of a sudden these Confederate monuments start going up. The yep. Confederate monument that is in my town, the largest one in the country was started um, I can't remember exactly when it was started. It wasn't right after the Civil War, though. Production stalled on it. Like, they had to, like, just, uh, they kind of abandoned the project for a while. Guess when they started working on it again? Probably the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah, I was going to say 1950s, 1960s. Yeah, in response to the Civil Rights Movement, you know? Oh. So what we're experiencing right now, our, our, our main event being the January 6th insurrection, yeah. is yet another fascist counter-revolution <laughs> to yeah. the threat of Black liberation, the threat of Black progress, of racial progress, right? And you still see Christians in the vanguard. I saw the so-called Christian flag waving in the crowd mm -hmm. as I watched the videos of the mm -hmm. January 6th insurrection. That same quote-unquote Christian flag was waving in the parking lot of my church growing up in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Same <sighs> Christian flag that was in the trailer of, of that little Royal Rangers, you know, program that I was a part oh, of. God. I remember like the Assemblies of God had like uh -huh. their own version mm -hmm. of the Boy Scouts called Royal yep. Rangers. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think a lot of white evangelicals, myself having been one and still white for sure. Um, <laughs> I think I think a lot of those edges are filed off. We might know, like, all oh, the Ku Klux Klan, like, came back in Stone Mountain, but, like, none of us know that it was a Methodist minister that right. started it. Who, my guess is, was not chastised by its denomination, was not brought forward to be accountable. Like, mm. so there was a system in place that said, this is okay. Um, and, yes. and doesn't and doesn't recognize the like religious, you know, overtones of things like, you know, the counter revolutions in the 1960s. And mm -hmm. and still, when we look at January 6th, we'll be like, well, those aren't true Christians, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. right. Those aren't the real Christians. When when I look at American history, the real Christians are the ones doing January 6th, like, yep. quote unquote, you know, when I look at American Christians, I'm not talking about like, you know historical Christianity, the teachings of Jesus. I just look at the tradition of Christianity and the way it's been used in America. It's, it is fascist, it is racist, and it, it is used to prop up these, like, yeah, to keep people of color, to keep poor people in their place, quote unquote, mm -hmm. because Jesus is the white guy. Yeah. Like you said it perfectly, Andre, like Jesus is the, it is the big plantation owner in the sky and we have to have mm -hmm. order on this thing in order for it to work. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, and that is why I, I, I'm really grateful that you brought this up as a vignette in church history, because I think we don't put those pieces together and I, we need to start doing that. I remember being confronted by a white evangelical pastor in 2016. Um, and I remember asking him, like, what do you, what is so, what is so bad about what I'm saying? Like, what is so heretical about what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And he said, it goes against the traditional teachings of the church. Now, there's a lot of ways oh. that you could take that and a lot of ways that you could, you could argue, argue with that, you know. Um, but one thing that I asked him was, well, why, doesn't, why don't the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. count as traditional yeah. church, church yeah. teachings? Mm -hmm. 
And he wouldn't answer the question because, of course, he wasn't engaging mm-hmm. with the conversation to actually have a productive conversation. Yeah. So right. He was just trying to, you know, <laughs> put me in my place. But anyway, so I look at that. And the reason why I wanted to emphasize, like, this is an instance of church history is because people do. There are many Christians who look at these things this way. Like when they think of church history, they might want they want they want to claim Martin Luther. You know, I mean, even though Luther was a semi anti-Semite. So, I mean, mm-hmm. like, but they, they, they're happy to claim Martin Luther because they don't know that part of Martin Luther's story and they know mm-hmm. of him as a father of Reformation. They're happy to, you know, claim Billy Graham, you know, and all these others. Um, but they but they they're not as quick to to um, they're not as quick to claim Dr. King unless it's a whitewashed version of Dr. King that they think everybody loved while he was alive. Um, but they definitely don't want to claim the slaveholders, you know? Mm-hmm. They don't yeah. want to claim yeah. the Klansmen, you know? And yes. I've heard that argument oftentimes. Well, those aren't real Christians. Those aren't true Christians. Well, they think they're true Christians. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? And true Christians oh. at the time thought they were true Christians. Mm-hmm. Like, right. And like, I obviously, I don't think that they were like, that they're really following the teachings of Jesus, but right. it's a cop-out you know, saying like those, those, well, they're, they're not true Christians. That's just another way to spiritually bypass the conversation. Mm -hmm. Like Christianity is so deeply implicated in the global system of racism that is now threatening our species, you know, like the same logics uh, and, and function of white supremacy in the world is, you know, has just grown and grown and grown and grown. It's taken on a life of itself. And now like we're, we're concerned, you know, about the survival of the species like that the church is so deeply implicated in that, that, the, that they can't just dust their hands off, you know, and say, well, they don't really belong to us. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because also, yes, there were count. Yes. There were people who countered it. Like there were pastors who walked the trail of tears. There were pastors who, you know, campaigned and leafleted against abolition. You know, there were, there were Christians who, I mean, one thing that, one thing that really like, that really challenged my atheism when I considered myself an atheist was like seeing Harriet Tubman's hymnal and Nat Turner's Bible. I was like, yeah, okay, well maybe, maybe the whole thing's not full of shit. Like maybe every Christian <laughs> is not, you know, yeah. like, right. So, I mean, there are those, but you know, we, we just, we can't over, you know, people can't overlook how deeply implicated Christianity has always has yeah has always been in this thing and I think mm-hmm. that that means that I think I think that that means that you know racism is in large part Christianity's mess to, to clean up yeah mm-hmm. yeah the one thing that I do kind of find hopeful is that the church is organized in such a way as to make that possible mm-hmm. right like yeah black liberation mm-hmm. right and like land back, like the church is already organized in a way to make really big things happen. Yeah. Yeah. And all they have to do is just do, do the thing, right? Yeah. Like the structure already exists. And that to me is like, I guess the most encouraging part of all of this is like, yeah, it is, it is really white Christians job to clean this shit up, but they're, you know, two thirds of the way there already. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't mean I, I mean like structurally, right? Not ideologically, but yeah, structurally, yeah, yeah. like they have the structures in place yeah. to empower them to fix this shit. Yeah, yeah, they really could. And what needs to happen is like Dr. King said, is a revolution of values, right? Like yeah, we have to, yep. We have to like 
we have to first off or they have to first off find the moral courage to admit that the breaking mm-hmm. of black bodies is essential to the story of the founding of America mm-hmm. yeah. right that you had slaveholders shaping the writing of the declaration of independence of the constitution you know building building this nation mm-hmm. um and that the church is deeply implicated that first they have to find the moral cur- courage to admit that that is consequential mm-hmm. <laughs> right that you know? yeah. that didn't occur in a vacuum yeah right and then like um, intentionally like decolonize and this is something i've been thinking about a lot like when we this is i think like after i'm after i've recovered from writing this book like i think i'll talk more about this you know but just um i felt like my journey was of becoming an anti-racist when that was like my first stop along the way and that was new hmm. language for me and i was like okay yeah. but i realized that i've been on a on a decolonizing journey and I think that if we start thinking about decolonizing, not just Black people and people of color and Indigenous people, but I think that when we talk about decolonization, it broadens the scope of what we're talking about mm-hmm. <clears throat> to where we understand that we are all dealing with, you know, the consequences of colonization, the consequences mm-hmm. of imperialism, including the people who are the descendants uh, of, or the, the people who are antecedents. Is that what it, like, dis- because everyone's descendant is like a very kind of specific thing. Anyway, if your mm. predecessors were colonizers, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, that also has an effect on the way that they think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. So my, white, my ancestors were colonized and colonizers. Right. And so white people have to take responsibility for their own decolonizing mm-hmm. so that they like we have to like. Black people have to decolonize to get the ways that the colonizers yeah. had pulled us away from ancestral wisdom and knowledge mm-hmm. and being mm-hmm. and behavior, right? Um, what, what the colonizers stole from us, what they severed from us, we have to heal from that. Mm-hmm. White people have to learn how to stop thinking like colonizers. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, um, there was a Catholic theologian, I think Matthew Fox is his name. Um, I don't know how up to date his critiques are, but he talked about white people taking liberation theology. And he was like, this liberation theology is great, but we need a different kind of liberation theology. We can't just appropriate um, the oppressed liberation theology. We need our own kind of liberation theology. And he posited some of his ideas, but he like, I just that critique that you can't just like take other people's theology. Like we have to do a liberation of our own um right. and it looks and, structurally very different which will look very different absolutely it'll look very different but that 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 means that in okay so it reminds me of mandela talking about his years in prison and in his years in prison he said that he realized that the oppressor is also oppressed right mm-hmm. because when you yeah. think with when you think within this framework within this common sense of whiteness like you literally cannot come to certain conclusions that are actually more true than the ideology that you've inherited. That's a form of oppression, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think, and that's why I brought up the anti-racism versus realizing that I'm decolonizing is because I think that if white people understood the idea of decolonizing, then the question of what do I do? How can I help? Those questions go away because you're not thinking of yourself as entering this conversation as, as you know, you're above and now you're coming down, you're condescending to help, you know? No, you yeah. realize that the only reason that you've been put on that rung of a human hierarchy is because someone built that human hierarchy in the first place and it never should have been there. 
right? Yeah. And you realize that you cannot come to the conclusions that you would if you had not been so deeply indoctrinated in the ideology of whiteness. And so right. you should be just, you are actually fighting for your own freedom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. You know? so. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks, thanks so much, Andre. That's really great. want to respect your time and, and let you get going. Um, but sure. I would love to hear just a, if, if you want to be found, where can people find you? And also yeah. if you want people to buy this new book, where can they go do that? Oh, for sure. So um, yeah, I have a book coming out in March called All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. It is kind of a memoir of my own political awakening and the things that I've learned about nonviolent struggle along the way and the people that I had to lose in order to learn those things um, and to step into, you know, this kind of movement work. Um, you can find that anywhere books are sold online. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, I like what that guy has to say, then, you know, I say yeah. about six. I say about sixty thousand words in the book. So, or, <laughs> yeah. Also, just for the record, Andre is obscenely talented in all of the ways. So, just so you know, once you go and like Google him, find his yeah. stuff, you will feel personally insulted that one person can be this talented. Uh, <laughs> so, just I just want that on the record. Andre is like, it 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 blows my mind. Thank on you. a regular basis how talented andre is and i'm jealous thank you <laughs> yeah um, i i've definitely um laughed and cried to um the playing hooky song many times oh man yeah like yeah. like like it starts as laughing and then it's crying and then it's laughing again and it's it's <laughs> it's yeah it's uh, very good so yeah i well, very yeah, much that's... appreciate you having coming onto our podcast and thank you yeah you, you know y'all can find me if you're listening at andrehenry.co um i have a mailing list there i send out um just a little tidbit about social change nonviolent struggle every saturday morning with some articles about anti-racism stuff and updates so if i have a new podcast episode or a new blog or a new song that'll also be in that email so oh great that's cool um well this is go home bible you're drunk you can find us at Go Home Bible on Instagram and Twitter. If you would like to support us monetarily, uh, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash go home Bible. Um, if you can't do that, totally understand. This is late stage capitalism. We get it. Uh, if you could share us though, give us a five-star review. That would be very helpful. And yeah, have a wonderful week, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.